Welcome to another Raven Narratives podcast. I'm Tom Yoder. And I'm Sarah Severson. The stories you're about to hear were told at James Ranch just outside of Durango when the theme was dirty work. The story you're about to hear was told by Kurt Brown. Here is Kurt's story. So I'm not sure this qualifies. It's kind of borderline for dirty work. I don't consider it dirty work, but I think the President of the United States would consider it dirty work. I spent 30 years in daily journalism up in Minnesota, our old home. I covered sports, I covered crime, I covered politics, and I'm sure the president would consider it dirty work, but my very first job was in a little town called Fergus Falls, Minnesota. It's in Otter Tail County, that's a real place. This was the summer of 1980, and I was going to college in St. Paul, and I had an internship at the state capitol where I'd cover Fergus Falls News and I'd call it in. It was before we could email stories back and forth. So when the summer came up, the editor said, hey, how would you like to work in Fergus Falls at the Daily Journal staff for the summer? And I said, you bet I'm in, count me in. It's a beautiful community. It's a land filled with lakes and pine trees. So we headed up there, my girlfriend and I, now the wife of my 36 years and three kids and two grandkids, but at the time she was my girlfriend. And so we were gonna have one romantic week weekend before I started my job, and she had a job back in Minneapolis, three hours down Interstate 94, and about an, Fergus Falls is about an hour from Fargo, North Dakota, just to give you a little lay of the land. So we got up to Fergus Falls, only to find that every hotel was filled in the whole area with weddings and confirmations and graduations, and luckily we found the last room left in all of Fergus Falls at the Lakeland Motel, and we were so young that I remember telling Adele to duck in the back seat. And uh, that way it was only $18 for single occupancy instead of 22. So we had our romantic weekend, and as we prepared to say goodbye for the summer, or at least for a couple weeks, I said, hey, grab the pillow. I had an apartment all rented out after Memorial Day, but I didn't have a pillow. So I was kind of like the Charlie Manson of this crime, and Adele actually stole the pillow. She did tell me, I don't think you should do that. I said, oh, just take the pillow. So anyway, she goes back to Minneapolis, and I have my first week as a journalist in middle America, and I had my first big story in the Friday paper. It was about a retired Chicago cop who came up and opened a resort on a lake up there, and this was kind of the resort preview for the paper. So I was feeling good. It was on the front page. And there was a picture I took of the swarthy cop with his arms crossed on his dock. And then they put a picture of me, a Chicago boy, joins news crew for the summer. So now I was feeling really good. So I was back in my apartment and uh, feeling good. And there was a knock on my door. And I said, wow, it must be the, the photographer I befriended. Or maybe it's the welcome wagon. So I opened the door to find two law enforcement officers. One looked like Dudley Durad. He had the big hat on. And the other was a plain clothes detective, kind of like Columbo. So I said, What can you do for what can I do for you fellas? I was kind of trying to shield any contraband that might be in the room. And they said, You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and now I was going, What's going on here? And it's funny now, but Back in 1980, it wasn't so funny. So finally, when I acknowledged that I understood my complete Miranda rights, 
um, they said the detective got his notebook out and he said, do you have one pillow, one pillow case and a towel? Yes, I was rung up on towel charges. And I was hereby ordered to appear in court on misdemeanor theft charges. Again, it's funny now, but it wasn't at the time. So we weren't too far away from Watergate, only about seven years at this time. So I figured my first strategy would be no cover-up. I was going to go throw myself on the mercy of Fergus Falls. So I went to the bar where my editor was having her happy hour. And I said, Pat, i got to talk to you. And she said, what? I said, well, I just got arrested. And she looked very alarmed. She said, what happened? I said, well, I stole a pillow. And so she fell off the bar stool laughing as did all the guys with her, who I quickly learned worked for the county attorney's office. Uh, they assured me that they would play golf with the judge and put in a good word for me, so I felt a little better. And I went back to the motel where the woman behind the counter said, I'm going to make an example out of you, Mr. Chicago boy. That's not how we do things in Ottertail County. She said someone had stole the phone the week before and she was tired with it, so... I said, I gave everything back. Can't we forget about this? And she said, not in Fergus Falls. But as I walked out the door, she said, you can still lead a straight life. <laughs> and that kind of stuck with me for a little bit. So I was there as the reporter who would fill in for everybody when they were on vacation. And on that previous, the f previous week, I had been trained in by the police reporter on the routine to go to the police station and go through what was still paper police reports. So there was the kegger broken up at the lake, there was the stolen boat motor recovered, and there was the suspect apprehended with hotel bedding material. <laughs> so all the secretaries in the office all were chick chuckling. Of course, they all knew that I was reading my own police report. And then I went and... Uh, I w and uh, so that was one thing. But anyway, I went to the owner of the paper. It was still a family-owned newspaper, the Underwood family, and Charles Underwood IV was the owner. So again, no cover-up. I was going to tell him everything, and I said, I need to talk to you. I was arrested for stealing a pillow, and he said, well, I'm glad I heard it from you directly, not the guys at the country club, because they were on his ass to print misdemeanor theft to cut down on shoplifting. They were the shopkeepers of the town. But he assured me they would let this case blow over before they changed the policy. So when uh, it came time for court, I appeared in front, I still remember his name, Honorable Judge Elliot Bow, and I pled guilty, Your Honor, and he said, well, seeing that you're embarking on a noble profession of journalism and you have no previous record, I hereby order you to serve 25 hours of community service and join our first-time offenders program. And I was sent over to my probation officer, who kind of chuckled at me, the hardened criminal that I am. And anyway, I was sentenced to 25 hours at the softball complex for a week. I arrived early, and I raised the flag, and I opened the concession stand, and I sold all the pop and popcorn and hot dogs. All the proceeds went to Jimmy's Leukemia Fund. So I did lead a straight life, as it turned out. I was a sports writer, like I said, for a long time, and I covered the Olympics and Super Bowls, and I stayed in really fancy hotels, and I never took the shampoo bottle, not even the free shampoo. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt, for telling that story. 
Our next story was told by Ken Vernon. Here's Ken's story. My, our youngest son uh, went to the police academy to intern for his high school uh, senior project. And he was very impressed with it, and he got to meet a lot of people, and he'd come home and brag about it and say, this is a lot of fun. You should go do it, Dad. And I said, well, isn't this job that you're looking at uh, for 19, 20-year-olds? And it's a police service aide. And I don't know if you guys understand what police service aides are, but they're 19, 20-year-olds. And what they do is they assist police officers. They do the accidents. They do all that type of stuff. So it's a precursor for becoming a police officer. So he told them that uh, you got to get my dad. And they said, no, it's a 19 to 20 year old job. And so they kept, he kept bugging them and he kept saying, you got to get my dad. So they finally gave in and said, okay, bring him over. So they introduced, I I met him and stuff. And so uh, they said, uh, go ahead and apply for it. And so they accepted me. Well, I wasn't 19 or 20 year old at the time. Uh, I just retired and living a great life playing bocce ball and cooking dinner and walking the dog. So having a great time. So I uh, got accepted to the police academy. So I was in the boot camp with 19 and 20 year olds. So the story starts, uh, they did a little uh, news project or a news story on me. And uh, so I was on the news because I was Albuquerque's oldest police service aide. So it was pretty cool. So I was becoming quite the uh, uh, recognizable person on the police force. So my 19-year-old trainer, my boss, uh, was taking me to different calls and stuff. So I was on on the job training. And our first, uh, we would go through a few of them and stuff. And people would uh, see me and say, oh, you're that guy on TV. And so I'd wave and everything was good. And they'd come up and say, oh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And just a lot of good report. So we got a call out and it was a suspicious vehicle. And uh, so I'm like, oh, great, here we go. So uh, we go out to the call, and there's this suspicious vehicle. And he says, okay, go take care of it. And I says, oh, great, you want me to do your dirty work. (laughs) Okay, so there's my story. So, but the dirty work, if you can imagine, here I am, uh, my nice little outfit and my bulletproof vest and all my gear, my OC spray and my flashlight. And that's it. And there's this truck that uh, was lifted up, big old wheels. You know the type I'm talking about. And you know who drives those. So I was a little nervous. And uh, it was a party going on. And he's parked on the sidewalk. So my trainer, my 19-year-old trainer, says, go take care of it. So I went to go take care of his dirty work. And I arrived at the door, knocked on the door, a little nervous, standing around. He's right behind me. And two kids come to the door. So I said, hey, do you know who owns this vehicle? They went playing their, vehicle, uh, their uh, Game Boys or whatever they're doing. So the door's open, and I'm sitting there waiting and waiting, and they're having a party inside. So finally, uh, one of the ladies came to the door, and they said, who's at the door? And uh, some police officers. So she came out, and she says, oh, what can we do for you? And we're having a party here, and it was a confirmation party. So it was, it was everybody's dressed up, and they were having a great time and eating cake. And so I said, well, I need to talk to some whoever owns the vehicle. out." And she goes, wait, you're that guy on TV. 
I said, yes. <laughs> so the next thing, she turns her head. She says, girls, come out here. And she started yelling. And all of a sudden, there was 10 females that were between 40 and 50 years old coming out to see what was at the door. So it's him. And everybody kept pointing. That's the guy on TV. And so they started making quite the fuss. And I think they had been drinking a little bit. And uh, so it started getting very interesting. <laughs> so I'm trying to <laughs> do my business, and they're like, oh, you want to come in and have some cake? And, you know, do you guys want something? And I'm like, no, we need to talk to the guy. And the, he says, no, can we take pictures with you? <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is not going how I expected. But, and my 19-year-old trainer goes, oh, not again. Because everywhere we went, everybody was like, oh, I know you, or you're the guy on TV. So they started coming out, 10 of them, and we're in their little courtyard, and they're all standing around us, and here I am, and here's five other women, and my 19-year-old trainer with his police-issued chip sunglasses, so he was really cool, and he was getting real excited because they're all standing around, and they're snapping pictures, and they're starting to get a little crazy, putting their legs up in our arms, and and I'm thinking, oh, great, I'm going to get kicked off the forest before I even <laughs> get my first week in. So that was pretty exciting. So I, I, we're having a good time. And I'm like, you know, I think we'd better get back to business. And I said, well, does anybody? Well, all of a sudden, here comes this guy. Never seen anybody. And, of course, owner of the vehicle. And as you can imagine, he was about six foot two. And he was very large. And he comes up, what's the problem? And so I said, well, sir, I need to, are you the owner? And yes. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> and, you know, here's all these women. They're just looking. And so they're starting to walk back in inside. And so he uh, says, what's the problem? And I said, well, it's your vehicle. And he said, okay, who called on me this time? So he was starting to get real upset. And finally, one of the gals in the back says, ah, shut up and go move your vehicle. You know you're not supposed to park in the sidewalk. So... Problem solved. It was great. He walked and left. So I, I, I told my 19-year-old trainer, we got to get out of here before something else happens. So we started walking out, and everything is going fine. And one of the ladies decided to come out also. So she grabbed her purse, and um, she started walking, and she started swinging her purse and saying, oh, officer, I'm jaywalking. you got to come arrest me. <laughs> so that was my story. <laughs> Thank you, Ken, for sharing your story with us. Our next storyteller is Jonathan Wegener. Here's Jonathan's story. I just recently read, and somebody in the room is going to correct me in their mind, I know, but uh, I believe it was Freud, um, who said we all have this like bit of our souls that want to be uncivilized, that don't want to be civilized, they don't want to be part of civilization and society and all that sort of stuff. So as I started thinking about my path, and uh, I think about the fact that the last one was in a church, and my mom, who's here tonight actually, she's here visiting, um, had myself and my brothers as acolytes. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. It's light, light Catholic, if anybody has ever heard of that before. And uh, at the age of, um, I think, 11, I was at the pulpit reading reading in front of the congregation and then having our very intellectual priest after the sermon correct me on mispronounced words and that sort of thing. So I was learning how to be civilized pretty young and um, didn't know it at the time, but that's what was happening. And um, 
as I continue to move through the world, I guess, uh, went to college, got a degree, that sort of thing, civilized, being civilized, uh, participating in random you know, campus activities and whatnot, doing civilized things, trying to be a good citizen of the world. Um, finished, finished college, and uh, shortly after, both my brothers are also being civilized, getting married, having children. I'm an uncle of six uh, between my two brothers. Um, and uh, at one point I decided, you know what, I'm going to do some dirty work. And I, I interpreted the theme as like literal dirty work. And so I'm imagining, like, man, I've done a lot of dirty work for somebody with a degree. Um, my first job out of college was washing dishes. Um, second job was ground, like a, like a grounds crew position. And eventually, after a few more dirty jobs, I ended up in Australia doing more dirty jobs. And uh, if anybody's traveled and worked in other countries, then they know like, you'll pretty much take whatever job's going to give you enough money to make it to the next place you want to go to. So I ended up uh, kind of navigating most of the country with a couple other backpackers I met and landed in Perth. And uh, I was starting to get pretty homesick and whatnot. I was wondering, you know, how much longer I can sustain living in another country. And uh, the job I picked up through a guy that I met on the other side of the country said, hey, I got a demolition business. If you're ever, if you're ever in Perth, call me up. You got a job. No big deal. And he was right. I called him up and he said, just whenever you get here, I got work. And it turns out not many people wanted to do what he was asking people to do. And I, got, I, I uh, was couch surfing and I met a guy who I'm still good friends with, which is really cool. Stayed with him for a night and started work the next day. He had a spare bicycle. And if anybody's ever been to Perth, Australia, it's not a really bike-friendly place, especially like Fremantle and... It, it's kind of how you would imagine parts of the Midwest, like not having bike lanes. It's nothing like here. And uh, I was on the equivalent of like a Huffy, probably a size small or something, trying to navigate around this new city to get to these job sites. And uh, I got to the first one, and they had a big excavator already going to town on this house, just tearing it down. At the time, the rules had changed in Perth for subdividing. And um, so this guy was making a killing. He was getting jobs to bulldoze house after house after house and it was getting subdivided and people were putting up brand new houses it was like the post oil industry boom when the the australian dollar and the u.s dollar were basically equal all these people with money were buying up property demo like demoing houses to build three more houses on the same lot so this guy had all the work he could handle and i showed up on time two days in a row and uh <laughs> All I did was spray water where the excavator was working. Anybody that's worked on a job site knows, like, you got to keep the dust down because there's bad stuff that comes up from demo, like, demoed houses, one of which is asbestos. And, uh, and on the third day, I found out that the boss thought I was doing a good job, and it just so happened to be that one of the guys on his little asbestos crew wrecked a truck because he was falling too close and texting and driving and he blamed the the boss for oh the truck's brakes didn't work the boss fired him on the spot you're gone so i showed up the next work and he said hey man can you drive on the other side of the road He's like yeah i've, I've had other jobs I've, I've i've towed trailers and stuff and whatnot shifting with my left hand it's kind of a cool thing to learn i guess um he said well would you be willing to kind of head up my asbestos crew Oh man, like what, what, what does that really entail? It's like, well, 
I got a, I got a Toyota pickup for you. I just need you to meet at the yard every day, pick up this guy who had a D, had too many DUIs, so he can't drive to the job site. And I need you to take all this equipment with you home every night and go to different job sites throughout the city and tear out asbestos with a hazard suit on in Perth, Australia. That's way hotter than here. Um, so me and this guy, uh, I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. He gave me a raise, I think, I don't know, a couple dollars more an hour. And uh, I did it for maybe two, three weeks or something like that. And I was kind of starting to question things a little bit. Like, man, I think it was like maybe Steve, Steve McQueen, they think, maybe died from his breathing in asbestos. I'm not really sure. But I started really thinking about, like, man, what am I doing? I have, a, I have a degree, like I have a good family back home and whatnot. Like, oh, I'm getting kind of homesick. I don't know if I want to be here anymore. This kind of sucks. And um, the, I saw the light. I saw the reason to go home. And I can't see any numbers. I might be, I'm not, I hope I'm not going too long. But uh, okay. But um, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. And I grew up about two minutes from Kauffman Stadium. And that year in 2014 was the first time in something like 29 years that the Royals made it to the World Series. And I had been making money in Australia. I'd saved a lot, lived like the true frugal backpacker that I was at the time. I said, you know what? On a whim, screw this job. I'm going home. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to the World Series. I had it all planned out. It was going to be awesome. And it was. And uh, the boss is pretty disappointed, but at that point in his profession, he was used to people flaking out on him, saying peace out. So I just like gave him the keys back to the truck, said, sorry, man, I'm out of here. It's like, well, I like sports too. Yeah, have a good time. See you, bye. And uh, like I said, I'm an uncle of six. And uh, before my endeavors of traveling and doing all this dirty work and stuff, I, um, I used to give thoughtful gifts, like uh, a gift to my sister-in-law for one free diaper change. Because um, I didn't have money to like buy gifts for all the kids and stuff. And I think it was within 24 hours of getting back to Kansas City after doing all this dirty work and really want to be home and feel civilized again. She gave, me a, she gave me a car that said one free diaper change. And I looked at my two-year-old nephew. And if anybody's changed a two-year-old's diaper who eats the same food as you, that's pretty dirty work. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan, for telling that story. Our next story was told by Christy Good at James Ranch just outside of Durango when the theme was dirty work. Here's Christy's story. A few months ago, early summer, a friend of mine and I decided to meet up for dinner. And we go to the 11th Street Station, you know, the food, food truck court. And she's got a little one. And the, the reason for our meetup is actually because she's leaving town. She's moving away. So we're having like one last hangout. And uh, so her daughter's two and a half years old and we're doing the dinner thing. And you know how it is, you're friends with little kids. You can't really have a, like, a real conversation because they've got one hand and one eye on the kid. And so we're doing our best to sort of have this, this last uh, moment to hang out before she moves away and I don't know when I'm going to see her again and so we managed to get our meal done and of course it's sort of like well now it's sort of bedtime so I got to take her home and um so it's getting kind of scattered and we're sort of trying to clean up and gather our things 
and get ready to say goodbye. And the her daughter, Ella, kind of goes off to the side. And so I'm trying to help out and keep an eye on their, her daughter while she cleans up the mess from dinner. And, and all of a sudden, I see her daughter, like, in the middle of the, the like, the food court area, kind of down in what my husband calls the boops position. I don't know if any of you know what that is, but it's sort of like child's pose, but with your butt, like, up higher. So she's down on the ground like that, and I'm like, that's kind of odd. So I realized, I thought back to earlier in our conversation, her saying something about, like, I think she might need to poop. She doesn't really want to go number two for me. It's kind of an issue. It's kind of a, it's kind of a thing we have. Um, so I'm just sort of ignoring it. Hopefully she makes it to, you know, home. And so I think to myself, oh, my gosh, she's got to poo. So in, in this moment, I go, well, I can't really get my friend. Maybe I should just check in with Ella and be like, Ella, you need to go to the potty? So I ask her, and she goes, yes. And before I know it, she grabs my hand and walks me to the potty. So I'm like, shoot, oh, my gosh, what do I do? Do I leave the door open? Do I close it? It's like a onesie, you know, a one stall. And then I'm like, well, shoot, I better, like, text my friend so she knows where we are. She doesn't think that, like, her child's missing. So it's all happening really fast. And I have to, I mean, she's little, two and a half. She, I need to help her on the body. I got to get her pants down. She sits there, and I'm, like, trying to text. And, and so then I'm, I'm, I'm kind of knowing, like, you know, we've all been through our stuff, and I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe she needs some comforting. Like, maybe I need to help her relax for this. So I kind of get down on her level, and I'm, like, sort of petting her. It was a little weird. And I was like, it's okay, you got this. I'm not sure what I said, but before I know it, she goes, I'm done. And right when she said that, I'm like, yeah, you are. It smelled so bad. So I, I lift her off, and I see her dirty work. And I go, oh, my God. Oh, my, oh my God, what do I do now? So I'm like, I don't, I don't want to wipe her. I don't want to wipe. I don't want to do this. And, and she's, she's, like, looking at me, like, waiting for me to do the wipe. And I was like you know what, I think your mom will clean you up later. So I, I pull her pants up. <laughs> I felt a little bad about that, but, but then, like, the bigger part of the job was the poop was so far forward on the toilet, it wouldn't flush. She and I both tried, like, four times. It was not going down. So I'm like, okay. It smells so bad, you guys. It smells so bad. So I'm like, we got to wash your hands. And then I'm like, I got to figure out how to get this, this poop down. And I'm like looking around the bathroom. What do I do? So I had to do, I had to like get the wad of toilet paper and give it a push to get it down. So then, so I'm like, okay, glad that's done. We march out. We find her mom. She didn't get my text. She's frantic. 
And I was like, well, we were in the potty. You missed it. Great fun. And she's like, well, what, what happened? And, and I was like, well, she pooped in the potty. She's like, oh. My friend was like shocked. She couldn't believe it. She's like, what? No, really? No, no, really? Ella pooped in the potty for you? And I was like, yeah. I was like, and then she like looks at her daughter. I was like, oh my God, do you know the very nurturing mommy thing? Like, oh, sweetie, I'm so proud of you. You pooped in the potty. And of course, Ella was like, yeah, mom, no big deal. It's just, it was easy. But literally, it was the first time on the big potty. It was her first time on the big potty. I was lucky enough to be part of that <laughs> monumental moment. So there, so you know, we have our goodbye. We didn't get a picture, and I didn't, I didn't know why. I was like, why didn't we get a picture? Well, the reason was, like an hour later, I realized I left my phone in the bathroom. Good thing I pushed it down. That would be embarrassing if it was still there with my phone in there. I, there would be no way to deny. Like, I'd be like, no, I swear, it was a two-and-a-half-year-old's. So I'll have you know that I talked to my friend a couple a month ago or so, and I said, how's it going? How's body training now? She's like, she's doing it. She's got it. So I feel really proud of myself. I'm not a mom. I've never done this before. It's my first time. But I did the dirty work, and yeah, so it was a success. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Christy, for telling that story. Our next storyteller is Scott Johnson. Here is Scott's story. Recently graduated from Fort Lewis College, class of 2018. Um, thank you. Um, but for the three years while I was doing that, I was working for the housing office as an RA. And for those of you that don't know what an RA is, um, it's a resident assistant, which pretty much means I get to be the 19-year-old in charge of about 20 18-year-olds and have to be the adult. And I'm sitting around here staring like, where's the other adults? Where's someone who is better at adulting than I to adult these children? Because I don't know what I'm doing. But one of the most common things that we do, especially since I worked all three years in the freshman dorms, um, one of the most common things that we have to deal with is residents coming back. It's their first time away from home. They don't have their parents there. Like, yeah, we're going to get up. Uh, <laughs> I was fortunate enough, fortunate enough to be on call that night, and one of our residents was from Australia, where the legal drinking age is 18. Comes here, doesn't quite know that it's not legal, A, to drink under 21 in the United States, and also to be intoxicated on campus is also illegal because we're federally funded. So I'm doing my last round. Um, it's a weekend, so this is like 1.58 at night. I'm like, okay, thank God we're finally done. The, house, the building is still up. No one's dead. We're doing good. Like, that was my goal as an RA. No one died this weekend. We're fine. So, uh, I start walking back to my room in my pajamas. I'm like, oh, finally get to go to bed. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Once I said that, all of a sudden here, the back door behind me opened from the main part of the parking lot. And this dude just lets out this biggest, like, howl I have ever heard in my life of just, Ugh! I'm like, what the heck was that? 
turn around and see this dude stumbling in, like can barely keep up. His friend's trying to hold him. They're moving around the entire hall. And I'm like, damn it, I'm still technically on call. I have to deal with this now. So we get moving and I go walk up to him. I'm like, hey guys, how's it going? Intoxicated kid's like, dude, I had like an entire bottle of vodka, all of this kind of stuff. Don't tell the RA. And I'm like, that doesn't quite work since I am the RA, but like I get it. I'm in pajamas and slippers, so like it doesn't make sense. So his friend's trying to help him up. I get their information. It's like the first week of school. I don't know this kid. He's not in my hallway. So I'm like, not my responsibility. Um, I have no clue what room number he lives in. He's so intoxicated, he doesn't even know that we're back on campus at this point. Um, So I'm like, okay, crap. I have to call my RD, who's an adultier adult who gets paid to, like, adult me. Um, (laughs) Call her, and I'm like, Merritt, you got to come help me. I don't know this kid. He apparently lives here. I, like, he can't make it up the stairs, so I'm, like, holding him. I can't just, like, drop him to go grab the roster and figure out where this kid lives. She's like, all right, I'll be right there. She comes up. She's like, hey, dude, how's it going? Trying to keep everything calm. We're like, he's like, dude, I'm good. Just don't tell the RA that I'm here. Still hasn't got on the point that, like, we're past that, that I am the RA. This is my boss. You're in trouble at this point. We start walking him up the stairs, get him to his dorm, just that way he has at least some place to sit while we call campus PD to take him to the drunk tank tonight. And we finally get him down. He's like, I got to pee. And me and Mira just look at each other. We're like, oh, crap. All right. What are we going to do? Stand this kid back up. Try to get him in. And luckily, he was in the suite, so we didn't have to, like, drag him into a communal restroom. He had one in his bathroom. So grab him. Try to take him in there. We get to the bathroom door, and me and Mira both kind of look at each other, finally having this realization moment of, he can't stand up. He has to pee. Which one of us is holding him? Where are we holding? This isn't legal on so many levels. What are we doing right now? So as we're having this moment of, like, concern of, like, oh, crap, who's going to jail on this one? He just storms off into the bathroom, locks the door behind him, and me and Mary just look at each other and we're like, okay, three, two, one. And you just hear this massive crash of, like, a six-foot-four Australian kid falling into the bathtub. Like, okay, crap, you go get the master key. PD's here. I'm going to go grab them so we can have them escorted out to the drunk tank tonight. And Mira runs downstairs, grabs PD. I go in there, and he is just covered in what I would like to assume was just water from the bathtub, but we all know better than that. (laughs) Just on the bathroom, on the floor, on the toilet, on the walls, everywhere. And I'm like, okay, dude, come on. Like, hike his pants back up. Try to get him outside. He's covered in it. By this point, I'm covered in it now. The cops grab him and take him off, and we're like, okay, great. This is now considered a biohazard because we also have to worry about that on campus. And, of course, we can't have residents clean that up. So I look at my friend. I'm just like, all right, one of the other RAs is here. Go grab me the hazmat kit. Get me the gloves. Get me the goggles. Get me some bleach. And I spend the next, like, 25 minutes just scrubbing his bathroom and mopping and covered in urine. And really supportive RAs and friends holding the paper towel roll over here so I can just, like, grab as much as I need. And, like, another one with trash bags over here. And I'm like, okay, we're going to keep moving. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Scott, for telling that story. The next story you're about to hear was told by Sandy Bielenberg at James Ranch when the theme was dirty work. Here's Sandy's story. 
So Sarah's always asked me to tell a story, and I always said I wouldn't because I'm not a public speaker. And the last time I was a public speaker was uh, when a really dear friend of mine died. Um, his name was Dr. Tom Grams, and some of you might know him or knew him. And uh, Tom was a dentist. He retired at 50, and he did so much volunteer work around the planet, mostly with uh, Global Dental Relief out of Denver. And he would go for six months working in Nepal or northern India, Ladakh, or, um, well, those were the two main places, Guatemala, I guess. He, he worked other places as well. But um, he always said to me, you should come on one of these global dental relief trips. And I'm like, what would I do? I am not a dental person. I'm, I was a school teacher. And he said there's plenty to do. But I never went with him. So three years after he died, I got an email from Global Dental Relief because I'd always given them money. And they were looking for non-dental volunteers in Cambodia. I'm like, Cambodia? Okay, uh, why should I go to Cambodia? But I signed up. I went to Cambodia. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do <laughs> as a non-dental volunteer. And the way these clinics are set up, it's, it's uh, generally in a school, in a classroom. It's free dental care for kids who don't have dental care. And... In Cambodia, it was in a very, very poor part of out in the country outside of Siem Reap. And this classroom was really filthy. And we'd, you know, we'd sweep and try and get it kind of clean. But the, the way these clinics are set up, it's like portable dental chairs, maybe six dentists, maybe one or two hygienists. And then the non-dentals have all these different jobs. And I was assigned the job of sterilizing the instruments. And so I didn't even, I mean, I don't even like going to the dentist. And here I am sterilizing the instruments for these dentists. And it's third world. I mean, we had, I had four plastic dish pans on the floor. And I had a shelf with some other dish pans with some other water in it. And I had a pressure cooker, that was the sterilizer. And when the dentist was done with one child, the assistant would bring, them, bring me the tray. And the tray, you know, it's a little dental tray, a little plastic tray, and uh, it would have the little mirror and the little explorer and maybe six or seven other instruments and extractors and things would be really bloody and there might be two or three bloody teeth on the tray. And these, I mean, literally these kids had not ever seen a toothbrush. They'd never been to a dentist. They, even six-year-olds would have these little little baby teeth that were completely bombed out, and that's a, that's a dental term. Um, and sometimes on their charts it would say that they had perfect teeth because their their primary teeth were all decayed, but they would keep, as long as they weren't infected, they'd 
keep them in their mouth as spacers for the adult teeth. But I can remember one little girl, eight years old, came in and, uh, you know, she had however many adult teeth, but she left, uh, there were eight teeth on the tray, eight adult teeth on the tray. She had hardly anything left in her mouth. That's like, these kids really need this dental care. It, it, it is an incredible experience, and that was really, really dirty work, but so gratifying, and I felt like I really was doing something for Tom as well, um, and for the team, for the team of dentists, the team of uh, non-dentals, and I've done every, I've done seven of these now, and uh, I've done every one of the non-dental jobs, but sterilizing's the dirty work, but it's good work. Thank you, Sandy, for sharing that story with us. Our next storyteller was Devin Riker. Here is Devin's story. Hey, guys. I'm Devin. I've been uh, clean from dirty work for about 14 years. Um, well, that didn't really go over, so... <laughs> it's a little too close to home, maybe, for some. Um... Uh, this goes back to uh, 19-year-old Devin, just uh, home from my freshman year of college and uh, back in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I always worked. You know, I worked uh, as a child um, a number of different jobs, namely in this, like, outdoor retail store, uh, as a lifeguard at U of M swimming pools. And when I was coming home from my freshman year of school, I was like, oh, I really want this, like, you know, I want this kind of transformative you know, manly job. And I was about 140 pounds and um, about the height I am now. But uh, I had really long, like, shoulder-length hair. I'd been, you know, doing my freshman year thing, probably doing a lot of drugs. Um, but anyway, so I was home, and I wanted this, like, this hard-working labor job. So my older brother had, uh, had mentioned that, you know, the last summer he had, he had uh, uh, worked at this cemetery, um, the cemetery that sits right on the edge of uh, University of Michigan's campus, downtown Ann Arbor. And uh, I was like, oh, Colin, you got to, like, get me this, give me a job. I'd love to, like, you know, join and, and, and do whatever it is that you guys do. I'm envisioning, you know, throwing a Frisbee at work and just, like, <laughs> and hanging out and it just being, you know, pretty groovy. And um, so Colin's like, sure, let me see what I can do. And my older brother's, you know, about the same size as me, but definitely, like, far more, like, of a strapping guy, super hardworking, and so he worked for this guy there named Larry, and um, he told Larry, he's like, look, my older, my brother wants a job, uh, he's super strong, and Larry's like, all right, so he's super strong, and he's like, yeah, he's super strong, he's a hard worker, so right off the bat, I was kind of, like, probably not in the best graces with Larry, day one, I come in, I got long hair, skinny kid, Larry looks, he's like, this, this is the guy? And my brother's like, yeah, he's, he's got a strong mind. <laughs> and so, you know, we kick it off with Larry. And this is like, I don't know any other way to put it besides like you literally would go back in time. So I'd meet my older brother at his apartment, which was, you know, like a quarter mile away from the cemetery downtown. And uh, it was hot and he had no AC. And I'd just get there at, you know, 630 in the morning because we had to be on site at 7. 
And I just lay on his bed and just like dread the fact that we were getting ready to go, you know, back in time effectively. And um, we'd walk up the slope, walk up the hill, walk through the gates. It was literally like in, you know, a new era. Walk inside. There's only five employees. Um, the cemetery was like 250, maybe a, a little over 250,000 tombstones. It was like, I don't remember the acreage, but it was massive. It was a kind of cemetery where you start in one sector. And the only job I could have, the only job that they would let me have is a, as a weed whacker or as like somebody who kind of like used this big bar after we had buried somebody to like kind of move dirt around. I wasn't really trusted with anything else. They thought I was a complete idiot because I couldn't dismantle a mower in five minutes or um, have a cigarette, you know, perfectly hang out of my lip, like <laughs> as we did everything. Um, so right away, like Larry and Bob and this other guy named Jason – Used to do this all the time. Would they? They? They kind of like didn't trust us. Um, they were definitely pretty shifty about why we wanted to be there, um, and that was fair. I don't. I, I didn't know what I was doing, so I was like, "Why? Why did I want to be there?" But in any case, so we're out there weed whacking, and like I said, you you would hit all the tombstones. They want you to like move at a very fast pace. By the time you finish the last stone on Friday, Monday, you basically start again on the other side of the cemetery, right? So the grass is constantly growing, and um, it was grueling. And, like, Larry would drive around in the cemetery and yell from his truck, you know, F and F and F and F and F and F and F, and you, like, <laughs> and point at you, and you're like, all right, I'm on it. Like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't speak this language, you know, but I'm doing my best. Anyway, so summer goes, and it's, you know, it's, it was a whirlwind. It was not what I anticipated. Um, I was dating this girl, right? And I was, uh, you know, pretty pretty smitten and, and, and over the moon about this girl. This was like a first kind of, you know, real girlfriend, going out at night, being out all night. Um, basically, she would wake up at like, you know, 4.30 in the morning. We would jump in her car. She would drive me home so I could get into my house before my parents knew that I had been out all night so I could wake up, so I could go to this cemetery job. So I was always exhausted. So this day, we, this one day, Larry's on vacation. He's out doing, like, this bear hunting thing where they put food in a can and wait for a bear to come and then shoot it uh, in upstate Michigan. And um, so he's gone, and Bob and this other guy don't know what to do with me, man. They're just like, why don't you drive around and pick up sticks, right? You got to – I mean, there's a lot of jobs in a cemetery, and keeping the place orderly and clean is one of them, right? So picking up sticks – when all you've been doing is weed whacking, it was like, awesome. I will totally do that, <laughs> right? So I get in one of the pickup trucks, and the pickup trucks are all really old, and they have a lift bed in the back. And I'm out driving in sector 43, 44, just picking up sticks, throwing them in the back, and I start to get increasingly more and more lazy, right? And I'm in this part of the cemetery where um, it's a little bit more of a rolly kind of hill area. And as I said, I... I continually became more and more lazy and uh, started trying to, or was not trying, I was successful, and just opening the door and, like, leaning out of the pickup truck <laughs> and grabbing a stick and then, you know, kind of doing one of those numbers. And uh, so I'm continuing on my charade, and uh, I, I, I happen upon, you know, a stick, and I lean out of the car, and the car is never coming out of gear, right, because I'm capable 
and I have my foot on the brake, my hand on the steering wheel, and I lean out, and I fall out of the truck. And we're on a hill, so I fall out of the truck, and I look at the truck, and the truck starts moving, and I like, so I'm running next to the truck, try to get back in the truck. The truck goes between like a, you know, a, the, uh, the first tree, it comes in a path, and the door just slams shut. That's right, the tree has now slammed the door shut. Now I'm just like, well, fuck. And I watched this truck go down the hill, and it hit like the biggest, oldest oak tree, just head on. The loudest bang I had, you know, ever heard is this old, you know, big steel front bumper. Um, and it was just like a, it was a colossal bang. And I just stood there like, oh, no, <laughs> this isn't good. And, um, and uh, my older brother comes over to the scene and we pry away the, 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 the bumper so that we can turn the wheel and I drive the truck back over to the, to the office, and I gave my notice. I was like, right, before Larry gets back, I'm just going to go ahead and like, bow out of this job. And uh, I did have to come back and talk to Larry when he did come back to collect my last check. But uh, after that, you know, I went back to school. Uh, I did the finance thing. And uh, like I said, I've been clean for 14 years. So thank you, guys. Thanks, Devin, for telling that story. You can listen to all of our Raven Narrative stories at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please share them with your friends and leave your own comments. We do have a few more tickets left for our events on October 25th and 26th in Cortez and Durango when the theme will be spooked. Find out more about those events and get your tickets while they last at ravennarrativestickets.org. And to check out our future events, including our December 6th and 7th Story Slams coming up with the theme of home, or to pitch your story for a future event, go to ravennarratives.org. The Raven Narratives is sponsored by Mancus Valley Resources. Find out how they support nonprofit projects in the Mancus Valley at mancusvalleyresources.com. Thanks also to Cortez Web Services, our web sponsor. Support your business's technological needs by going to cortezweb.com to discover more. Our theme music was written and composed by Mo Cooley and performed by Mo and the Motones. Find out more on their Facebook page. That's at M-O-E Tones on Facebook.